Hey, hey, everybody. Man, we have an exciting episode today. Before we get started, just a reminder, all the resources that are mentioned in today's episode will be on the website. Also, you guys can support the show over on the website. Up at the top, it'll say support the show. Just follow the links and boom, there you can go. Little as five bucks and you guys can help the show keep going and getting on these great guests. But with that being said, man, I am so excited for today's guest. She grew up loving and caring for a bipolar mother. Not only that, she's experienced depression herself due to life events and is bringing awareness that nobody is immune to mental illness. She's helped build the largest mental health employee resource group at a Fortune 500 company. She's a TEDx speaker. She's created a youth program and she's written a book, Breaking Into My Life. And the list goes on and on and on. And I am just so excited to just dive into Michelle E. Dickinson's mind and really just excited to see what she has in store and share for us today. You guys are going to get some great resources. I feel like you guys are going to get a lot out of this. I definitely got a lot out of this. And I definitely want to have her back on the show because I think it is important to bring awareness to mental health. And it is important to get rid of this stigma around mental health. The more and more people talk about it, the better and better the stigma around mental health is going to get. We don't need to hide the mental health issue anymore. It's time to bring it to light and it's time to help people that are suffering. It's time to help people that are supporting somebody that's suffering. So with that being said, I am excited and honored and pleased to dive into this week's episode. Let's go. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Man, do I have an exciting guest for you today. We got Michelle E. Dickinson. How are you doing today? I'm awesome, Dylan. Thanks for inviting me. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about you and what you do. So first of all, I just want to thank you for wanting to have me on to talk about this topic. I think it's great. And I think the more people that want to talk about this, the better we all are. So yeah, so I am a mental health change agent. I call myself a change agent or a well-being strategist. And I do that because my life has personally been deeply affected by mental illness. I grew up with a mother who struggled with bipolar disorder. I spent many years caring for her and looking after her. And then as I got older, I dealt with my own depression. I was adopted and never thought in a million years I would ever have to deal with that. But I had to suddenly deal with depression. And that was due to a life event that I was going through divorce. And then the other thing that I have done is I worked with a corporation. I was an employee in a Fortune 50 company, and I helped to lead the first mental health employee resource group and shift the culture within the workplace to be more understanding and compassionate for people with invisible disabilities. You know, oftentimes organizations are very conscientious about physical disabilities, but they're not tuned into invisible disabilities. So having those three experiences really set me up to create my own company, which is Trifecta Mental Health. And I work with organizations to bring compassion, understanding to the workplace, but also to teach resiliency to employees, especially now during the pandemic. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think mental illness is very underestimated. Like a lot of people don't take it serious. And I've noticed that with my own experience with my wife and it can get pretty expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually been crazy because we've been having a hard time getting her on disability because it's hard to recognize 
a mental illness illness as a disability. Yep. So yep. tell me a little bit about the trifecta of mental health. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very interesting environment. There are organizations out there that want to do better for their people, but what they tend to do is gravitate to a clinical narrative and invite people in to talk about mental health first aid or uh, signs and symptoms of certain diagnosis. And what that actually does is it exacerbates stigma in the workplace. I come at it from someone who just has lived experience, whether I was caring for someone or I was experiencing mental illness. I am not a clinician, but I don't believe you need to be a clinician to teach compassion. So my trifecta lens is one that is very personal and I witness what works and what doesn't work in the corporate setting. And I have a deep compassion for those suffering. So if I can help people understand what it's like to care for someone with a mental illness or to suffer themselves, then we do good in the world to have people who are afraid of care or embarrassed of care suffering in silence. We need more people to reach out for help before crisis. Why do you think people put that stigma around it? Because you, we see in the news and everything, like there's negative aspects to mental illness, like someone's always doing something crazy because they have a mental illness. So how do we bring a positive awareness to mental illness? Because my wife did go get help. And then, you know, people came back at her like, well, why don't you just get over it? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And it's like, Mm -hmm. because she can't and she needs help learning how to do that. So how do we get rid of this negative stigma around it? I think it's through education and open dialogue. I truly believe that. I think you know, we don't know what we don't know. And I grew up with a mother who had bipolar disorder. Not everybody did. So if you had no relationship to mental illness and you watched the news and you saw, God forbid, a shooting and they're saying this person was mentally ill, that is your bias that you live with every day because you don't know what it's like to love someone and care for someone who suffers. So I think it has a lot to do with education, having people understand, listen, the brain is just another organ. We all have different organs in our body and sometimes we need additional support. So it's shifting the relationship to the brain And then it's also, you know, if you could help people understand the brain's just another organ, that is the first step. The second step is openly talking about it. And that takes something. So, you know, someone telling their story about navigating something and coming out the other side, that represents hope. And so if we can have more open conversations and sort of be just vulnerable and honest, that creates an access for someone who might be struggling in silence. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I had to come to terms with, too, because I've dealt a little bit with mental illness myself, um, not as nearly as severe as my wife. But yeah, I think it's just bringing that positive stigma and awareness around it. Now, it is pretty expensive because my wife went to a home and I feel like kind of ripped off a little bit. Why is it so expensive for mental illness and why are insurance companies not really they're kind of iffy about covering it? Yeah. You know, it's so hard. In the United States, we clearly need uh, healthcare reform. There's no two ways about it. And mental health is one of the areas. And so I can't speak to your specific example, but I, what I will say is that with this pandemic surfacing and the CDC declaring that one in three are dealing with depression or anxiety, it's going to demand there be change. Because the reality is so many people are struggling with something right now because of the pandemic, because of quarantine, 
that there has to be change. Companies, for example, that I work for, the ones that are getting out ahead of it and really helping their employees with enhanced resources and support, they're the ones that are going to stand out. And I believe that's how we shift cultures is by shifting companies' cultures um, to shift communities' cultures. So I'm optimistic that this pandemic is really shining a light on the necessity for elevated mental health care. And hopefully we're going to get there. I kind of want to step back and talk about from a spouse perspective, because Mm -hmm. when my wife had to go to the home, I had to come home to stay with the kids. Yeah. And my work didn't take to it so well. And I ended up getting let go from my job because she ended up needing to stay a little bit more time. And I let them know that. And they said, no, you have to come back by this date or we're going to have to let you go. So I kind of want to come out of like a spouse perspective. How do we handle around this whole mental illness and trying to explain that to our workplace? And that is such a reality and so true. And I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. You know, when I was in my Fortune 50 company, the reality was the employees themselves weren't struggling. They had a a partner or or a family member at home struggling. And that comes to play with them going into the workplace. They're bringing that with you. You bought that with you. And it's not easy. So those organizations that are recognizing the need to help their people support their families, they're the ones that you want to work for. They're the ones that are going to stand out amongst the other organizations. I know that doesn't help you with losing your job, but like shame on them for not acknowledging and realizing this was something that you needed to do for your family and that they couldn't find a way to support you, that they had to let you go. That's so unfortunate. I hope that there's major change within how companies support people who support loved ones because it has to get better. Yeah, definitely. Now you talk about five stages of cultivating compassion. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So in the workplace, if you go to my website, you'll see five ways to cultivate a culture of compassion at work. There are simple things that you can do. My website is michellee.dickinson.com. So if you go there, you'll see the five steps and I'll share like the first few of them. The first one is really about an organization having a remit that they're going to be a truly inclusive organization, that they are going to be inclusive of people with invisible disabilities, just like they are of people with physical disabilities. So they need a remit at the the highest level of the organization. And then that has to be backed by policies that support that. That's the foundation that has to happen. The next thing I would say is having leaders be vulnerable. A leader's behavior and a leader's actions can set the tone for the entire organization. So if you had a job in an organization where your vice president had a story associated with anxiety and he didn't have a problem sharing that, it would really create a space for other employees to be able to be themselves and to say, oh my goodness, like I struggle with that. And I thought I had to keep it a secret. And I thought I had to just pretend everything was okay. And that, in fact, adds another layer of stress onto that employee. So leading by example, organizations with leaders who will lead by example and not have shame around it is really going to create a culture of compassion and understanding, you know, and then there could be activities that different organizations can do. You could create a peer support community. You can create an employee resource group. 
like I mentioned before, employees supporting employees, employees who have navigated something come back to the workplace. They represent hope. And so if they could tap into their greatest asset, their human capital, and have each other help one another, of course, in addition to clinical support, that could really shift the culture and have people not feeling like they had to put on their game face every day and go to work. Right. And I think that's important. And I think that there is like this huge stigma with adults, but I think it's important that we look out for it in our youth as well. Because having six kids or, you know, myself Mm -hmm. and my wife dealing with, you know, BPD, I worry that something might affect them or that they need to get the treatment when they're younger or, you know, I try and look for the signs. But like, how do we help our youth as well? So we have such a golden opportunity with our youth to, you know, as adults, we're trying to erase a stigma, right? Imagine growing a generation, there is no stigma. So we have an opportunity to normalize the conversation about brain health just by simply checking in and saying, how are you feeling today? How are you doing? You know, as adults, we wake up in the morning and we scan our physical bodies for the latest ailment that we feel, our back hurts, our leg hurt. But are we really scanning and saying, how am I feeling emotionally today? How am I feeling mentally today? And so if we can get our kids to be checking in with how they're doing and verbalizing how they're doing, then if they're not doing well on any given day, you have the opportunity to intervene and talk to them before things get really bad. So it's checking in with one another. It's normalizing the conversation about how you're doing really on the day to day. I have this cute little graphic I can send you. Yeah. For kids specifically, where they're all these different hearts and you get to identify which heart you're feeling today and you put it on your refrigerator. Oh, and then if it's on the refrigerator, you can go over and say, what heart are you today? Oh, you're not doing so good. Okay, so what's going on? Oh, let's talk about it. And then you get in there before, you know, he acts out or she acts out or she something bad happens and then it escalates. Like normalize that conversation at the breakfast table every day. Right. Now you have a youth program, right? I do. I do. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Because I'm definitely interested. Yeah, for sure. It's a, a project that was created actually out of my own childhood. You know, having a mom, being raised by a mom who is emotionally unavailable has its whole other host of challenges for growing up with that. But I always felt like I wasn't good enough. So the name of my project is called Perfect Just the Way You Are, because we can't assume that every child is being reassured at home, that they're being told that they're limitless with their potential, that they're being told that they're beautiful or they're smart or they're funny. So this program is designed to bolster self-esteem, to teach kids how to nourish their body, how to nourish their mind. And really teach them empathy, compassion for themselves and for one another. And so that program was born out of my own needs as a little girl. I said, if I could help kids, what would I want? And I want them to know their greatness. I want them to know their limitless potential. And so I launched that project several years ago. We reached over 2,000 kids, New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, And now it's moving to a virtual version for that because it was run as an after-school enrichment program and then morphed into a wellness fair for an entire school. But nowadays, with everything with quarantine, it has to move online so that we can get kids the benefit of the, you know, nourishing the body, nourishing the mind. Now, where could we find that? Because I'm probably going to check that out. (laughs) Absolutely. So it's on my website. You'll see the little trailer video. It's on my website, michelledickinson.com. So 
check it out. And you can just reach out to me through my website. If you have questions, you want to bring it to your classroom, you want to bring it to your school, you want to talk to a teacher about it, reach out to me and I can give you all the information. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely probably do that because... I want to bring that to our schools. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) and I'll help you. That's great. Okay. Sounds good. Now, do you think people fear mental illness? I think it kind of goes back to the news. No, I think it's our biases, Dylan. So we all have biases. We bring biases to how we do life. And so if our bias is that mental illness equals a crazy shooter, then that's something to be afraid of. But if our biases are, I love my wife and she's, she has bipolar disorder. It does not define her. And I love her. And I know that she's a good person. There's nothing to fear there. All there is to do is to love and support. Yeah. And that's one thing I'm learning is just loving her and supporting her. And sometimes there's nothing I can do. It's just comforting, you know, Yeah. when she's having a bad day, just what do you need? Yeah. And leave it at that. And sometimes it's nothing. And sometimes it's a full list. It's just really, you know, what she needs for the day. So you have a book, correct? Yeah, I do. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I'm probably going to order that too. Because I'm super into all this mental health and trying to get rid of the stigma. So Yeah, we need you. That's great. We need you because the more people talking about it, the less the stigma can. Stigma can't live with conversation. So you just having this conversation, it starts something. So yeah, I was nominated to give a TED Talk several years ago and tell my story. It was definitely something I concealed as a secret and didn't want people to know about. But when I gave my TED Talk, the power of storytelling is amazing. People just came out of the woodwork, wanted to talk to me. They could relate to my story. They thought they had a bipolar parent. And it got me really connected to, if I could do this in a 10-minute TED Talk, what could I do in a book? So that's when I sat down. And over four years, it took me four long years and cathartic years, I recaptured most experiences I had growing up with my mom because I wanted people, I wanted to humanize mental health, you know, just like you were telling me about your wife, like she sounds like a beautiful person. I wanted people to see the beauty in my mother and also see how punishing it can be for someone to love someone like that. And I wanted people to realize that eventually I got to the point where I separated my mother from her illness and I was able to love my mother 100%. And maybe not love her illness because her illness made her do things that I didn't like. So it was basically my whole journey growing up as a child, as an adolescent, as a young adult, and caring for her. And then the implications of having her as a mom and how that shaped me into the woman that I became and sort of my journey to becoming an advocate in her name. That's interesting because so the book's more towards like people who are dealing with somebody that has it. Yeah, it's a way to help people understand. For example, when I released the book, a lot of people with bipolar disorder reached out to me and said, for the first time, I understand what my life might be like for my partner or for my daughter or for my son. So it really shines a light on the caregiver more than anything. But it also teaches people to have compassion because for the caregiver and for the person suffering, it's a complex challenge to have a mental illness for everyone involved. When one person in the family is diagnosed with a mental illness, the entire family is affected. And you know that very well. Yeah. And I actually wanted to dive into that a little bit because my wife sometimes is really hard on herself because she feels like 
she's not giving the kids everything she possibly can and feels like she's kind of failing as a mom sometimes because of what she's going through. And I kind of want to dive into that and maybe how we can help in that or being Mm -hmm. from somebody that's supporting somebody like that, Mm -hmm. what we can do from that standpoint. You know, there's a great organization out there called the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. Okay. And NAMI has chapters across the entire United States. NAMI is a great resource for family members who have a loved one with mental illness because they have support groups for the person who's suffering and for the family members. It was actually born out of a family member with a loved one with mental illness. And now it's a nationwide organization that is helping a ton of people. So I would say tap into that kind of an organization that can help you navigate some of those challenges because, you know, I know my mother's experience and I know it from the lens of a little girl. I don't know that I could help you in this case, but they could because they have members in in their organization. It's a nonprofit. It's a .org, but they have communities of loved ones. And then they have communities of people who suffer, who feel the same emotions that your wife is feeling. Okay. I'm going to put that in the show notes and, um, Definitely put it up on the on my website so people have that resource to go to. Now, what was the name of your book again? Sure. Thank you for asking. It's Breaking Into My Life, Growing Up with a Bipolar Parent and My Battle to Reclaim Myself. But you can just simply Google Breaking Into My Life, Michelle E. Dickinson. Okay. And that's on Amazon, your website, everywhere? Yeah. Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. It's on ebook. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now... I like to ask everybody about a book that they like. I know you have your book, but is there another book that you would like to recommend to people that to read? Yeah, The Four Agreements. Before Agreements? The Four Agreements. Oh, The Four Agreements. The Four Agreements. Okay. I can't remember who the author is, but that book is amazing because it's it's a great way to live your life. It's by Miguel Don Miguel Ruiz. It's all about how to live your life, basically, um, for basic agreements. And it's so eye-opening. It guides me in how I live my life every day. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to check that out, too. <laughs> you have some great resources for us today. I appreciate it. Sure. Now, what can we all do now to care for ourselves and maybe loved ones? It's a great question because the pandemic is like, it's been really hard. We're almost at a year, right? Or are we mm-hmm. at a year we've been? Oh, my word. One year. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I think the first thing we all need to remember and recognize is that we need to give ourselves grace. This has not been an easy year for many of us, you know, between loss of our loved ones, God forbid, to COVID, loss of a job, uh, financial challenges. There's a lot of things going on in the world. And then we're being pummeled with, you know, news and social media. And, you know, we had political challenges, we had all kinds of cultural challenges going on. So I want to want people to recognize that it's so important to give themselves grace and step away from the media and give yourself compassion and those around you compassion. So what does that mean? Like self-care, like if you need to take a walk, take a walk. If you need to take a day to just take care of yourself, give yourself permission to do that. Self-compassion is so important. And then don't forget to check in on those that you love because even the ones that who you think are the strongest, you don't know how they're faring. People say we're all in the same boat. 
we're really in very different boats in the same ocean because we're all navigating this in our own unique way based on our own past traumas and experiences. So don't assume the guy in the boat next to you is doing okay. Always reach out and say, how are you doing? Because you could be the only person checking on them. Yeah. I actually talked to a friend about this the other day. You know, if somebody's coming and you're saying, hey, how's it going? And they're like, oh, I'm grabbing a six pack. Or And every time you ask them, you can kind of tell signs when somebody's like going through a rough patch almost yeah. just by talking to them. And I think it's important to reach out to friends and family every once in a while and just see how they're doing because they may not be doing okay. And all they need is that text from you. Exactly. And when we look away or we step over something, that could be a really big mistake. You don't want to look away when you know in your gut something is going on. And here's a tip. Many people will look the other way and assume someone else is going to check on them. That might not be the case. And you don't have to fix it. All you need to do is check in and listen. Your listening can make all the difference. And I think people shy away because they're like, well, I won't know how to help them. I won't know how to direct them. Dude, just listen. Just tap into them and listen so they feel heard. Because the chances of someone actually, first of all, you know that when you go in your head, you make things 10 times worse, right? If you stay yeah. in your head, the vortex of your head, it, you suddenly, it, something that was this little becomes this big. Right. So when you can get it out of your head and verbalize it to someone, you diminish its power. So it's real important that you just sort of reach out and let them speak and not feel like you got to fix it. You don't have to fix it. You just need to be there. Right. And I think that's why I want to build this website to a point where I have all the resources on the website so mm-hmm. people can go to the website and point people to that direction. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have to be the one to help them, but at least point them in the direction that they need to go. And that's the whole reason I really want to do all this is so people have a place to go. Right. I'm a huge advocate for like social media detoxing because I think we so much compare ourselves to everybody else. And again, that gets you back in your mind like, well, look at all the stuff they're doing. Look at what I don't have rather than being grateful for what you actually do have. It's so true. It's so true. And even if we're not conscious, if we don't think we're consciously doing the comparison, our subconscious mind is. We're always comparing and contrasting our lives against someone else's life. And let's face it, it is a curated reflection of reality, what they're posting. It's not reality. It's what they want you to see. So I love the idea of detoxing. I had a friend of mine say, take it off your phone for a week. Don't friggin' look at it for a week and see how you feel. Acknowledge how you feel, you know? Yeah, that actually helped my wife because when she was gone for a month, they couldn't have their phones at all. And even when she came back, she stayed off of it. And she was probably off for about four months. And you could just tell a difference in her just being off of social media. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's everything in moderation. Absolutely. And I think people need to remember that because it's like the compounding effect, Dylan. So do yourself an exercise and reflect how you're feeling and then go on social media for a half an hour and come off and reflect how you're feeling and see if they're any different. I love that. It worse, right? Because chances are good. You're probably not going to feel as good as when you logged in. Man, I love that one. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I will try that. Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate you coming on today. And where can people find you? 
Thanks for asking. Yeah, my website's the best way because you can get links to my Twitter, my Instagram, and to my Facebook. So my website is Michelle with two L's, E, Dickinson, like fairly, D-I-C-K-I-N-S-O-N dot com. So Michelle E. Dickinson dot com. Awesome. I appreciate it. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Mm -hmm. Bye.